This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. The real story of the ocean depths begins where you left off. Wonders that defy my powers of description. The secrets that are mine alone. Last nine, you are tuned to 102.7, 3RRRFM or via rrr.org.au. This is Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. Good morning, Dr Beach. Good morning, Dr Burton. How are you? Oh, yeah, and my name's Bron Burton. I'm well. <laughs> That's good to hear. Missed that. How are you? Uh, yeah, I'm well. Good. Thank you, Tim. Yes, thank you, Tim. For a wonderful show. Thank you very much. And our show, which is indeed about all things wet and salty. Today we're going to... We're going to start off by having um, Helen Gibson in from the Sandringham Foreshore Association. Last week, listeners might remember if they were tuning in that we had Dr Eric Fitzgerald, a paleontologist from Museum Victoria, talking about the very significant fossil site down at Morris, which may be threatened by a marina which is um, proposed to be put in. We're going to discuss that in quite a bit more detail today with Helen Gibson and... And we're going to be joined on the phone by Tim Flannery. Very exciting. Who is lending his support to this particular campaign for a bunch of reasons, uh, and not just because he's Tim Flannery and he gets behind things that are environmentally uh, requiring his knowledge and assistance and expertise. He's got personal reasons, is what I'm trying to say, for getting involved with this one. Well, yeah, kind of personal, professional. I mean, bringing in his wonderful expertise. Yeah. So anyway, we're looking forward to um, to speaking with both Helen and Tim. And that'll be at about ten past nine. It will, and uh, then we're going to see how long that that conversation goes because there's a lot of ground to cover, and they've got a public event coming up next week, and we certainly want to give that as much uh, exposure as we can for people to get down there and, and um, find the information out for themselves. But we're also going to catch up with Captain Winshift. Uh, yeah, Captain Winshift's going to be on the blower, telling us about all things which have been happening in the small 
boating world, in the small sailing world, in the dinghy world, over the summer. It's been a while since we've had him on. Mm. Uh, so that might be at about 9.40. That's right. And to close the show, Jeff Maynard's coming in with his first segment of, um, we haven't got a name for it yet, Coastal Classics, we'll go with that. He's, uh, Jeff's our, if you haven't caught up with Jeff before, he's our in-house uh, maritime archive expert. He brings in segments and bits and pieces from all sorts of... Um, Retro audio. Yeah, it's all very serious. Yeah, it's. What do you not. mean we don't have a name for? Yeah, I guess we don't have a name. For <laughs> not for this one. He's bringing the classics. The, the clues for this one are 1957, John Carradine, and a diving bell. Cool. And I actually know what it is because I googled it. It's going to be fun. <laughs> Well, I'm glad you know what it is, and the listeners certainly don't. So. Indeed. So, big show. Hey, I'm going to do the weather, and then we're going to do a little bit of news, Dr Beach. Yeah. There's been rather a lot this week. Uh, weather for today, 36. We're pumping back up to a hot one again. Uh, humid. Sunny day. Uh, slight chance of shower or thunderstorm in the evening. Light winds becoming north to northeasterly to 15 to 20 kilometres an hour in the morning. Tomorrow, 24, partly cloudy and winds west to southwest, so it's going to definitely cool down again. Chance of rain, 50%. Uh, and Tuesday, 23. Wednesday, 23. Thursday, 28. Friday, 32. Saturday, 33. We're certainly in the habit of having warm weekends followed by mild weeks. So that's what's coming up yet again this week. The tide times. I don't know if it's going to get to 36 today, though, is it? 33, I I see. Well, I'm... Looking at the age. Well, yeah, who can trust the age? (laughs) I do. (laughs) As you know. All right, tide times for today. We're uh, heading for a high tide. This is at the... uh, Sorry, we're heading for a low tide beg your pardon, at Port Phillip Heads at 1.45 this afternoon. That's probably the only relevant one you need to know about today. We had a high tide at 10 to 8 this morning. I'm going to read the surf forecast because Dr Surf's not around today. Exposed beaches east of Melbourne offering the best waves this morning with a small swell offshore north to nor'east wind. Water temperatures 20 degrees. How lovely. Phillip Island, clean, fun, one metre waves at Woolamai. On the peninsula, great 1.25 waves across all beaches with a bit of a weight for the bigger sets. And on the surf coast, small, infrequent, half metres sets at 13th and at Fairhaven. Dr Beach, let's do some news. Uh, yeah, reported in the Sunday Age this morning is quite an interesting item. We've all we've talked about this a little bit and we might do it in a bit more detail coming up this year, but this is about labelling of seafood and where it comes from in our fish and chip shops in particular. So there's plants afoot. Uh, well, the government is due to respond next month to a report by um, the, a labour-led committee, state labour-led committee, which found that seafood labelling would, be, would benefit consumers, local fishers and the national economy. Um, this needs to be expanded, according to many people, and I just think, personally, I would agree on this, to fish and chip shops. So when you buy a piece of flake or blue grenadier, a snapper, whatever it may be, that should have a label saying where it's coming from. And the age is reporting that there's a few fish and chip shop owners who are in support of that. Sounds like a good idea to me. I'd like to think they're all in support of that. Yep. Well, maybe they can be held up as champions. (laughs) There can be some kind of incentive for them. This goes around and around and around. We've had so much... This comes up every year, fish labelling, and we never seem to get to the bottom of it. We seem to make some headway and then it all seems to go backwards again, so... Yeah, I think there needs to be a little bit more clarity on that. And also the information out there about what is indeed sustainable and what's not. I think there is a lot of mixed information. And I, for one, would like us to get to the bottom of that, so to speak, this year. Indeed. Another bit of news. This is not fresh off the press, but um, people may have 
realised that since the election of the state government in Victoria, that the Point Nepean plant, so the development at the quarantine station of Point Nepean, that that is likely, we hope, um, led by our new Environment Minister, Lisa Neville, who indeed sometime in the future we would like to get on the program, she is looking at turning that decision around, which was made by the, the previous state government just before they exited. They gave the approval for that. So that might get the crunch. We can hope. Yeah, we can. Yeah. Well, I've written that one off, I have to admit. I'd kind of just resigned myself to the fact that was going mm. ahead. So that's um, that's very encouraging. Well, I, th I think the basis for turning it around is that it was given to one large developer. It was, you know, they were given, you know, not only should the... A lot of people like me, for example, think it shouldn't be touched. But if you're going to touch it, don't give it all to one developer to, you know, do what they want to, more or less. Mm. Let's try, as we said, we will try and get Lisa Neville on at some time in the future. Yeah, a whole lot of things we want to talk to her about. Uh, including the um, thing, the item up for discussion later on the show today, which is the um, proposed marina at Bo Morris. That's right, coming up very soon. I've got a couple of things I want to mention really quickly. One which has done the rounds a lot and a lot of people have sent it my way too, relates to a paper which I know you've got right in front of you, Dr Beach, uh, which has come out and been picked up by mainstream media relating to um, a figure, a very startling figure. We all know that there's a lot of plastic in the ocean, but there's a figure that's been put on it. Eight million tonnes of plastic added every year. Indeed. I hadn't even seen it in the mainstream media. I just noticed it in the journal Science last night when I was looking at it. So this has appeared in this week's Science. It's from a group of seven authors, uh, one of whom is Chris Wilcox from CSIRO in Tasmania, where they have, for the first time, um, linked the worldwide data on solid waste, population density, economic status and all those things to estimate the amount of land-based plastic waste which is entering the ocean. Um, it's a lot. It's 4.8 to 12.7 million metric tonnes, well, metric tonnes, yeah, million metric tonnes entering the ocean every year. And interestingly, the bottom line to this paper is they say that, you know, the rapid growth of, growth of synthetic, synthetic plastics in the waste stream requires a paradigm shift, as we know it does. So better recycling. Perhaps don't manufacture as much of it in the first place. And... The thing that worries me the most about this, and there was some social media conversation on this amongst my circles, um, you know, the last couple of days, because an Age article came out on Friday. We all know what the problem is, and we all know what needs to be done. It, it, it's how you translate that into action, and how do you get globally governments to take responsibility? I think that's the key question with this. And at what point is there a role for a national, an international organisation like UNEP, the United Nations Environment Program, to step in and say, right, well, this is a problem that isn't... It, it, there, are, there are common uh, issues for so many countries involved there needs to be something that links all of them together, I think. Otherwise, everyone will just kind of put their hands in there and say, oh, this is terrible, and what can be done about it? Well, that's right. I mean, there are many global issues that we've got to face, in particular climate change. That's it. Uh, Nerida, who's panelling for us today, has just made the point, and she's right, that New South Wales recently has introduced container deposit legislation, which has existed, I don't know if you noticed, on the back of your plastic bottles, it always, if for years it said if you take it back in South Australia, then there's a place where you can take it yep. and you get some money back for it, and something that's New South Wales has now picked up. That's a whole other issue, and there's so many depths to that particular issue. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, it's a start. 
Mm. Anyway. But, yeah, we need the data and here's the data. It's been published in the prestigious journal Science now last we, Thursday. Now we need action to follow. Very quick plug, then we're going to play some news and um, looking forward to then speaking with Helen Gibson and Tim Flannery about this issue down at Bo Morris. The plug is for, this is, uh, I want to finish on a positive here, AMSA, which is the Australian Marine Sciences Association, uh, combining with Museum Victoria, are putting together a seminar, it's a public cinema, cinema, <laughs> Cinema. Cinema. A seminar in a cinema. Um, It's uh, showcasing Victoria's marine science. So this is featuring leading Victorian marine scientists uh, sharing inspiring stories about their marine research. So um, I think we've interviewed all of these people at some stage on our show. Dr Beach. Peter McCready, who's talking about bright ideas for blue carbon. Um, Jan Strugnell, who's talking about sensational Southern Ocean. Tim Allen, Radio Marinara's very own uh, godfather. How, Tim? Marine conservation and how that counts. Alicia Belgrove on seaweed superfood. Tim O'Hara on discovering deep sea biodiversity. And Kate Charlton-Robb, the journey of dolphin discovery. So fabulous seminar coming up Wednesday, 4th of March. So we'll mention this one again over the next couple of weeks. But I wanted to put it out there now so you can pop it in your diaries. 6 till 7.30pm. It's at the Melbourne Museum Theatre in Carlton Gardens. Tickets are $10 for full price, $8 concession. Tickets are limited. You need to book online and uh, go to amsavic.eventbrite.com.au. Yes, that's a long, uh, a long address. We'll put that on our Facebook page so you can check that one out. amsavic.eventbrite.com.au uh, or if you uh, just... I guess put into a search engine, AMSA Victoria. I'm seminar. sure that'd bring it up. You'll bring it up. Now, last week, Dr. Eric Fitzgerald from Museum Victoria spoke about the hugely precious marine fossil record we have right on our doorstep along the Beau Morris coastline. And if you didn't catch the show, the site has international paleontological significance. It's Australia's best snapshot of marine life 25 million years ago. 85% of Australia's seal fossils on record are located in this site alone. The site in question is currently under threat by proposed development by the Beau Morris. Motor Yacht Squadron to build a new clubhouse, 120 berth marina, three-lane boat ramp, breakwall and an outfall drain. The proposals moved forward to consideration under an environment effects statement. To explore the issues and the campaign to have this site saved from destruction, we're now joined by Sandringham Foreshore Association's Helen Gibson and on the phone, Professor Tim Flannery. Good morning, Helen. Good morning, Bron. And good morning, Tim. Good morning. Thank you to both of you for joining us today. Um, Helen, I thought I might start with you and your group. Um, the Sandringham Foreshore Association, take us through who you are and how you came to be. Yeah, sure. Um, well, Sandringham Foreshore Association, we're a charitable not-for-profit organisation. We were founded in, in 2007, so we've been around a while and we're really there for the sake of conservation of the foreshore environment for all users in the community. And we, we're about the promotion of... Um, awareness, education and good management decisions for the foreshore. We're very lucky in Sandringham and the whole of Bayside. Um, we have a unique situation of, of a wide uh, zone of, of natural vegetation, flora and fauna, and that combined with um, very uh, good tree planting of native species through to the golf course zones. We actually have a fantastic habitat for um, a brilliant array of Australian species and we nurture and we love and protect that um, in in any way we can. So when issues come up um, we like to uh, promote community awareness and motivate people by by scientific knowledge because we like to align ourselves with the experts. 
And so your members, Helen, who who are they? Um, not all of them, obviously, but <laughs> more interesting, what, what parts of the community do they represent? Okay, well, we represent the views of around 5,000 local residents and we have about 500 subscribers to our newsletter and events. And uh, we, the, our members are, are pretty much just um, lo local people who love and care for the foreshore in the same way we do. Um, and they they really enjoy to, to hear the scientific facts behind why it's such a special environment and and uh, um, they, they like to be informed. I, I really have a belief that um, you know people aren't dumb, they, they understand the science particularly when you bring it to them. Tim, I uh, wanted to ask uh, and clarify why you're involved. This isn't a case of, of you being an extremely well-known person helping out a cause, is it? There's a personal, uh, there's personal significance for you with this particular one, isn't it? Well, well that's right. I, I grew up uh, at Sandringham and went to school at Mentone. <coughs> and uh, in those days, it was the 1960s, the uh, in, environmental movement was pretty embryonic in Australia and there was a lot of terrible things happening uh, on the land. You know, the last of remnant bushland was being cleared. Uh, there was a lot of development and no one seemed to care very much about any of it. And the refuge that I found from all of that was Port Phillip Bay, which then was a beautiful environment. It was really pristine in, in many ways and full of life. And uh, at, at Beaumaris, what I discovered was not only could I enjoy that bay by snorkelling in the modern bay, but that there I could also get insights into this ancient bay that vanished, you know, 10 million years ago. And, and that imaginative journey for me as a child was just so formative. I mean, you, you, I remember diving down once and finding the, a section of jawbone from an ancient whale that was nearly a metre long, just lying on the bottom. Uh, it was just amazing. And the shark's teeth and you know, the, the wing bones of penguins that were long vanished. So... For me, it was just this extraordinary place. And I, I, I guess as a child, I thought it was special for me. I didn't realise till I was an adult just how special it was worldwide. That's right, Tim. It's, it's Dr Beach here, and I, I share your early love of the bay. I was lucky enough to grow up by the bay as well. And I guess Helen, um, Helen was mentioning before that local residents at Bo Morris are... Getting involved in this through the Sandringham Foreshore Association, but you just touched on very briefly then, and we did with Dr Eric Fitzgerald last week, that this is really, to me, it's not an issue of, I mean, it's of local significance, but it's of much wider significance because of the the significance of the this group of, this two-kilometre stretch that we have down there at Bay Morris. And I wonder if you could just take us through that again, that the significance of what has been found there, and I guess more importantly, what hasn't been found there yet. Yeah, sure. <coughs> Look, that little area of the bay is so important because the rocks there have folded in a particular way that have exposed a layer of sediment that was laid down 10 million years ago uh, and which formed probably near the mouth of the ancient Yarra River. So where the fresh water of the Yarra, ancient Yarra was coming down and meeting the bay, it was a very rich environment and was full of animal life. And through this freak of geology, really, the fact that this uplift of the rocks has occurred just there, um, right at sea level, you can access those ancient rocks. And if you snorkel and go into two or three metres depths of water, you can see the ancient seabed there as it was, you know, millions of years back. And the fossil preservation is just exquisite. I mean, you find everything from clamshells in their growth positions through to barnacles still encrusted on 
bits of whales' bones and things like that through to very delicate little fossils, crabs and so forth, as well as the shark's teeth and everything else. So it is incredibly important. The most productive part of that entire area was right where the yacht squadron has been built, the motor yacht squadron has been built. So under that rock still is preserved the, one of the richest and most important fossil troves in the world and uh, for that age. And I am certain that... If the proposal to put that motor yacht squadron to build it was put today, it would be defeated because the values of that area, they're unique, they're just so important internationally. Um, so the fossils are still there. Um, people continue to find fossils through that little arc of rock set, a two or three uh, kilometre arc of rocks, but it is endangered uh, by not just the motor yacht squadron development, but the ongoing what's called eutrophication of the bay, where uh, nutrients are now flowing in from those 300 barrel drains around the bay, and there's some that really look like they belong in Mumbai rather than a city like Melbourne. They're so polluted. Um, bringing that pollution into the bay and allowing algae to grow. And what was once, when I was a child, this beautiful, hard coral, encrusting coral environment full of fish and things, uh, now it's being slowly taken over by algae by this green scum so so there are a number of threats that need to be addressed but we have to we, you know, it's common sense to address them because i'm sure melburnians want a clean and beautiful and diverse bay with these extraordinary areas preserved there rather than what will turn into a sort of an open drain if we don't do anything you know with with, with boat access around it not there's anything wrong with boat access but it shouldn't come at the cost of the fundamental values of the bay that's right. Um, I wanted to draw everyone's attention to uh, uh, what I believe is quite a significant piece of work that came out in the late 1980s by Neville Rosengren. And there's a, a sites of geological and geomorphological significance on the coast of Port Phillip Bay. This is just one of a series. This one came out in 1988. And this particular site in question was listed as having international significance. So through this process, Neville assessed and graded all kinds of sites, both within Port Phillip and Western Port, but then... Um, back through the catchment as well. And uh, I understand that these days, these particular fossils are so important, they get used to date fossils in Europe, and particularly the seal fossils. And we're talking about seals that lived in Port Phillip Bay 20 million years ago, and there's no nowhere else where the, these particular um, fossils have been preserved. And uh, I was having a look last night um, at this particular uh, summary about, and it's listed as by Morris Cliffs to Yacht Squadron Fossil Site. And I'm just going to read a little bit in terms of what Neville said about the significance. And uh, he says, international, this site is part of the type locality for the Cheltenhamian, which I gather is Cheltenham, <laughs> Cheltenhamian stage, a stratigraphical subdivision of the late Miocene. It is therefore a reference site for comparison for all other rock sequences of this stage in Australia. The site also has yielded one of the most diverse assemblies of marine fossil mammals record, recorded in Australia. There have been numerous scientific collections from and papers written about this site. It is therefore of the highest significance and should be managed in future as a scientific reserve. And he goes on to talk about his recommendations for management, which is class one, the top level of management. And he says the site should be managed as a geological reference site and highest priority given to maintaining exposure of the fossil beds, both in the cliff and in the nearshore area. No coastal 
Coastal Protection Works or extensions to boating or other facilities that would cover or preclude access to the geological exposure should be permitted. Of particular concern is the recent, and this was back in 1988, reclamation of foreshore to allow extension of private parking facilities for the Bo Morris Motor Yacht Squadron members. And it goes on. What I find particularly interesting about um, but this is that it's currently listed. This I actually found this on um, the uh, economic, the Victorian Department of Economic Development, Jobs, Transport and Resources, which gives me some hope that if this is actually listed on Victorian Government website that there must be some attention paid to it. Have you got any comments, um, Tim, about, about that particular study? I gather you're quite yeah. familiar with it. Sure, yeah, I do. Look, um, if I could just um, go back a step, you're talking about those seals, and um, one of the things that remains to be discovered at Bo Morris is the front end of an entire seal skeleton. When I was about 16, I was diving down there in some water about three metres deep, and um, went to the bottom and saw this strange-looking rock, about 60 centimetres long. I picked it up. It turned out to be the backbone of an ancient seal, and it's one of the most important seal fossils found there. But what was unusual about it was all the bones were articulated. I could see where they were going into the rock, but I was running out of breath, so I came up to the surface. It was a really windy day, and the thing was pretty heavy as well, and I got blown away from where I'd picked it up, and I kept on diving back to try to refine the rest of that skeleton going into the rock and never located it. I know it's there. It's still there, probably ahead at the end of it, but uh, someone needs to go back and find that. So that's just one little opportunity where we get a huge amount of knowledge from one specimen. But in terms of that study, you're quite right. I mean, the, 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 the Motiot Squadron should never have been built. And I suspect in years to come, it will be dismantled and taken away because the value of that fossil site is so extraordinary. And you can have a, a Motiot Squadron anywhere. You can have a car park anywhere. You can't have those fossils anywhere. They are unique. And as I said, they're still lying there under that, under that um, infill that people have put in. So one day, hopefully, uh, we'll see them again and we'll be able to open up that enormous treasure trove of ancient fossils. It gives us this window into an older Melbourne, a richer Melbourne, a, a, deep, a deep part of Melbourne's history that is so fascinating. Helen, I saw your face light up at the mention of that particular seal. Have you got some information on that one? No, I just thought I wanted to say I'm, I'm so excited because, I mean, the voices of Tim Flannery and Eric Fitzgerald are, have been joined um, together with many international groups and I just wanted to bring some of those to your attention because just in the last week or two we've been made aware of position statements being um, lodged by the International Society of Vertebrate Paleontology, also the Royal Society of Victoria. And just, um, just on Friday, they released their position paper and they were just saying that uh, uh, together with um, the many paleontologists they've, they've listed who have collected sites over the years, such as Frederick McCoy, Francis Cudmore, Professors Singleton, Pritchard, Hall, Chapman, including Tim Flannery, John Long, and George Laylord Simpson. He is one of the most influential figures of the 20th century paleontology and evolutionary biology. And, and so um, the voices of the scientists are not alone. They're joining together. And the Royal Society of Victoria also um, 
uh, makes pains of pointing out that there are fossils yet to be realised and um, really this site is uh, needs to be preserved for ongoing uh, research and uh, perhaps could be uh, realised an educational potential for this area. Um, you know, we really shouldn't be building a marina. It should be an education centre here. Yeah, I guess that's a key question here. You mentioned about preservation in terms of the protection that this site has. What is that at the moment? Um, well, the protection is uh, <laughs> a bit limited. It's really a very... Um uh, understated part of the bay. Um, people wander down there now and uh, well it's charming in, the, in that sense. Um, there are many users who who just go down and enjoy it um, with their their kids, they snorkel. Um, it, it's a very understated part of the bay but um, um, as well as that we um, have a good chance to see um, the, the potential too and, and really as things come under pressure there needs to be more structure given to the w to the way that we're going to set up these conservation areas. Here's quite an obvious question, uh, and you, you may or may not have the answer to this. Given all of this, and it seems incredibly obvious to me, does the Beaumaris Motor Yacht Squadron recognise the values of this site? Do they actually understand how valuable, valuable it is, both in terms of its national and international significance? Do they actually get it? Well, I, I, personally, I don't think so. <laughs> um, going back um, just a couple of weeks now, on the 1st of February, the Beaumaris uh, Beaumo, Motor Yacht Squadron, sorry for that, um, on the 1st of February had a public information day and um, they were presenting the pre preliminary results of the EES to date, which is going to sort of come together a bit more later this year and I hope more public consultation will happen. But um, they were asked to, to report to the public on a number of um, issues that they've been directed to, to do so under scoping documents released by the Department of um, Transport Planning and Local Infrastructure infrastructure. So they've been asked to, to carry out um, assessment in the areas of coastal processes, um, biodiversity, habitat, traffic, including fossils and geomorphology. Um, I, I, I did come away very concerned after that open day. I felt that um, there's a lot... Uh, a lot of knowledge gaps and this is why we like to promote um, the work of the experts because um, we're really also calling for um, a, a larger understanding of this area and, and really the experts need to speak here and they, they need to speak to the Environment Minister. Um, we need to put a stop to this EES. I guess we should mention that next Sunday, March the 22nd, there is going to be an information day down there. Um, Helen, that's true, isn't it? And Tim, I believe you're going to be down there with Eric Fitzgerald as well from noon till about 3 o'clock. I believe this is at Ricketts Point, is that right? That's, that's right. correct. And that's it going to be a, an exploration of the, the fossils. It's, it's more, more an education thing, isn't it, allowing people to, to have a look at the fossils that are there, pick some up on the beach and to, and to be informed about this, you know, this wonderful history, this window from 10 million years ago, which I'd just like to repeat another figure that Eric mentioned last week. I think it's 20, week. isn't it? 
Is it 12? I don't know. I thought it was 10. It's, 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 a, it's around about 10. Okay. There are Could we clarify? There are rocks underlaying the, the kind of main fossil layer. So there's a whole sequence of rocks, of course, but it's um, down at the bottom, maybe 20, but the, the main fossil layer is probably around 10. Oh, good. We clarified that. Representing 30 different families of vertebrates, and nine of these families occur nowhere else in the fossil record in Australia. That's nine families. And as Eric said last week, you know, the cat family includes lions, tigers, all those things. So we've got nine families of things with backbones. <laughs> So I would like to go down next Sunday, the 22nd, and I encourage other people to go as well if they want to learn about the fossils. And I guess this whole issue of the, the marina will be discussed too. Um, Tim, what, what will uh, you be speaking about next week? What's, what's your plan? Look, I'll be speaking about the, the importance, obviously, of, of this particular site, but I want to try to contextualise it a bit in the, um, in the bay itself. I mean, the bay is um, an incredible resource for Melbourne, and yet Melbourne has really taken it for granted and let it degrade, and I think there's a whole lot of things that need to be done uh, to bring the bay back to health, which will, of course bring benefits to the fossil side as well. And with a new government here um, and the pride people having the bay, you know, I think we can see a way forward. And it'll take years to, to, to get all the steps in place to clean up the water quality and, and put back some of the biodiversity. Um, but over time, that will have, have a great impact. And, and I hope I live long enough to see something like an interpretive centre at Bo Morris, a bit like they have at La Brea in, uh, at the Tar Pits in Los Angeles, because this site really is our La Brea. It's our, it's our great insight into the past. Yeah, and uh, look, there is there is a perfect uh, alternative proposal put for this this site, and uh, I can see that as being a, a very happy conclusion to this particular. Uh, Helen, was there something you wanted to mention? Just a few details for next Sunday. Um, if you'd like to come down, um, I encourage you also to bring children and fossil collections because the experts will be on hand to identify them. And just to repeat the speakers, so Dr Eric Fitzgerald will be there and Professor Tim Flannery and Professor John Buckeridge. So the, the day will kick off at 12 noon, but the official talks will be from 1.30. And if you're after some further information, there is a phone number, which shall I give on air? Absolutely. 9544-5993. And that's at the Beaumaris Life Saving Club, which is at Ricketts Point at, at Beaumaris Beach. Have you, um, have you invited Lisa Neville along, the new Environment Minister? We have. Good. Let's hope she goes. <laughs> so I just wanted to make that point again. This is this event is not at the Beaumaris Motor Yacht Squadron, so don't go down there. <laughs> it's at the Beaumaris Life Saving Club, which is at Ricketts Point. And just repeating those details, next Sunday, 22nd of February, from 12 till 3, with uh, talks commencing at 1.30. And, look, good luck, and uh, I'm really going to do everything I can to get down there as well, along with you, Dr Beach. Um, any last words uh, before we let you go, Helen? I just want to thank you for the opportunity and uh, I really um, believe in the, in the community motivation that will arise from this. I know that um, people are concerned and it's uh, if you write letters, if you contact your local member and the, uh, send letters to the Environment Minister, Lisa Neville, I'm sure we'll, we're going to get somewhere with this. And Professor Tim Flannery, any, any final words from you? Yeah, look, just don't go down to the motor yacht squadron. There's no public <laughs> access to the beach there anyway anymore, which I think is a travesty in its own way. Um, but do come along and try to support the effort to create a better bay and a, and a better Beaumaris, um, for sure. Thank you so much for joining us, Tim. We really appreciate your time. Thank you. And thank you, Helen. It's been 
Wonderful. Thank you for having us. We've been speaking with uh, Helen Gibson from the Sandringham Foreshore Association and Professor Tim Flannery. Uh, and we'll put all of those details about next week's event uh, up on our Facebook page and uh, and make sure you get along. Also on the Triple R page. And we have on the blower our very own Captain Windshift. How are you going, Captain? Uh, very good, Dr Beach. Lovely day. It is a lovely day. It's a long time since we've spoken to you. I reckon it must be November or something like that. It is, it is. So we've had summer in between, we've still got a bit of summer, but yeah, what's been happening for you over the summer in the small boating world? In the small boating world, Port Phillip Bay has been a hive of activity for small boat sailing, actually. Um, since we last spoke, uh, just about everything's happened. <laughs> we <laughs> first thing happened was just before Christmas was the ISAF World Cup. Um, which was in Melbourne itself this year in Port Phillip Bay. Can I just clarify that? That was the ISAS World Cup. Okay, so the, uh, I'll get all the correct French words, but it's the International Sailing Something Something Federation. Anyway, ISAF, ISAF. ISAF. These are all of the sailing dinghies that compete in the Olympics. Mm Mm-hmm. And obviously, since the Olympics are only every four years, there's a whole bunch of sailors who need something to do in the intervening time. So they have the World Cup. And that travels all over the world. And this year, Australia's version of it was in Port Phillip Bay at Sandringham. Cool. Yeah, it was fantastic. We had millions of boats all jammed into Sandringham Yacht Club with sailors from all over the world, some of the best sailors in the world competing over that period of time. Um, and in order to make the locals feel a little bit um, part of it, they have inter- invitation classes as well. So some of us locals got to actually be there and compete in it, which was great fun. Including you, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. We, um, My class, the 505s, we were there, and the Vipers, the F-16 catamarans were there. So we had local sailors in there with um, all these wonderful superstars of sailing. Fantastic. Um, looks like a pretty nice day out there today to get on the bay. You, um, you're getting out there? Hoisting oh, your sails? No, no, no. Unfortunately, I've got my boating dry dock. One of the joys of sailing boats like this is every now and then you break it. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> what about <laughs> others? <laughs> but lots of other people will be out there. Um, everybody's still recovering from regatta time. So just after the ISAF World Cup, then everybody got a small break to actually see family and friends for Christmas, and then it was back into regatta time. And Port Phillip Bay over January had more sailing than you could shake a stick at. Um, I won't go through all the classes, but um, everything from the OK dinghies, B-14s, I-14s, and, of course, the moths. I'm not sure if listeners have heard of moths, but they're really quite something special. Is that a, a small dinghy of a particular size? or They're absolutely tiny. Um, you can pick a whole moth up and carry it out into the water. <laughs> and in fact, you have to, because unlike most normal sailing dinghies, they have a centreboard and rudder, but on the bottom of the centreboard and rudder, they've got little wings, and they actually fly out of the water. So the whole boat is <laughs> poised several feet above the water, hurtling along at incredible speed. Wow. Yeah, they are. It sounds like a flag fish. Extraordinary. They're really bizarre. I wonder and if this is what Judith Lucy is talking about in her new show, Ask No Questions of the Moth. I don't <laughs> think so. <laughs> 
could well be. Could well be. And that was extraordinary. That was held at Sorrento. And because they're what's called foiling boats, it's attracted all of the America's Cup people who are sailing the foiling catamarans in the America's Cup. And so you had a who's who of some of the top sailors in the world screaming around the bay on these wonderful rocket ship moths. Quite something. Hey, Captain, it's Bron here. What a uh, what a contrast for an America's Cup, you know, between an America's Cup boat with a yacht, ship, these massive boats, and this tiny little thing that you can carry out yourself. I know, I know. It, it's um, it's become the practice boat for all of the America's Cup people because the foiling is very, very similar. Keeping those things flying is an amazing skill. Um, I'd, I'd recommend if anybody wants to drop drop their jaw in amazement, it's just um, Google YouTube for moth sailing. You're like a Formula oh, One driver, it. Formula One driver jumping on a skateboard and taking it down to a local skate park, maybe. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I want to do that. Oh, they're they're um, a little bit difficult, shall we say? Right. I, I I can imagine. Yeah, yeah. And I would probably kill myself even if you were there looking after me and holding my hand, Captain. Oh, I think I'd kill myself. So I'm dying to give one a go. Oh, you should. Like a lot of, mm. That can be your homework, Captain. Between now and oh, when we right. catch up with you next. Okay. In the intervening time, I shall try and get a sail on a moth. Excellent. Cool. Hey, Steve, or Captain Winshift, thank you very much for um, your first appearance on Radio Marinara for 2015. And we hope to continue this regularly, as I'm sure we will. That would be terrific. All the best and have a good day. You too. Thank you. See, See ya. ya. Bye for now. That was Steve Harden, a.k.a. Captain Winshift. Yeah, and just a, a little plug too for the Port Melbourne Sailing Club. This is a community sailing club. You can the working man's sailing club. Yeah, and women's. Well, yeah, I'll use the term yeah, homo sapiens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And anyone can go along. You don't need to own a boat. You don't need to have a fancy big four-wheel drive thing that tows it or anything like that you can just rock on and they'll take you can have a little trial and take you out you can join you can crew on any of their their uh, their members boats it's a, it's a great great place to be good morning jeff maynard good morning dr beach and dr burton i'm <laughs> sorry I was, I was somewhere else i was looking my, my little red light on my microphone's not on and i'm thinking oh so i'm making all these wild signals i'm back um how are you very well and yourself i'm good good to I'm have good. you back uh thank you um what am i going to talk about today let me have a look um you know that yeah, I know. We, that. Do, we don't. Actually, actually, I was listening on the way into the you know, the show, and um, uh, it, it's this movie I'm going to talk about reminded me just how little we knew about the ocean as recently as like 50 years ago. It really was a mystery, and um, I remember reading just recently about the International Geophysical Year, which I think was 1958, when all the countries of the world got together and sort of did testing from the poles and the, all these places, and the only real value they saw in the ocean was it would be a good dumping ground for nuclear waste because it just get rid of it, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and this was you know, not that long ago. Um, anyway, the movie I'm going to talk about today, going from the sublime to the ridiculous, is called The Imped- Incredible Petrified Forest. And uh, let's start with some opening narration that promised uh, quite a lot. This is the sea, as old as the world itself. It extends over three quarters of the surface of the globe. The sea, the birthplace of life, the great storehouse of minerals, the prison of haunting mysteries. The ocean is a dangerous jungle. Each creature preys relentlessly upon another. Since time began, the ocean has withheld its secrets. Man has ventured merely to its threshold. 
Oceanographers have, with precise instruments, presented us with a framework of facts. Around these facts, our imaginations reconstruct the eerie, forbidding atmosphere of the deep. Now, you can always work out an actor's um, career or how successful it was when you go to IMDb, the International Movie Database, because if they're any good, they've got a little photograph where they put full cast and crew next to the, the movies. They, um, they have a little photograph of the actor, and if they were rubbish, there's no photograph, of course. Let me guess, there's no photograph? Well, John Carradine up the top, he's got a photograph, and underneath him there's about 20 people who are in the movie, and not one of them have a photograph. <laughs> so you, you kind of know it's downhill from there. Uh, but anyway, when you go to um, uh, The Incredible Petrified Forest, basically the plot revolves around you stick a couple of people into a diving bell or a big um, steel ball, put them on a chain or rope and send them down to these mysterious ocean depths and the chain breaks. Uh, John Carradine apparently made something like 450 movies and um, half of them haven't even been documented. He must have been, he worked on the sets of all these places in Hollywood and just wandered from one place and wandered in, did a movie and wandered out again. And his part in here is to sort of talk on the microphone and say, oh goodness, the, the steel chain's broken and I don't know what they're going to do down there. So that's about, he must have shot the whole thing in half a day and um, he sort of says things are happening. Captain! Mr. Wyman! Come here, quick! Do they have a chance to make it? The pressure's much too great for survival of that depth. Then why would they attempt to leave the bell? Not knowing how deep they went, I suppose they figured it was worth a try. Isn't there something we can do? Some way that... Oh, they'll never make it to the surface even without the pressure. I'm afraid they were crushed the moment they left the bell. What we see is their bodies floating up over the currents. Basically, what you've got down below is uh, two two sort of guys who didn't have much of careers with sort of this black well-oiled hair and two women in tight sweaters with push-up bras and they're kind of wandering around and their diving bell falls into these paper mache caverns where there's air and flat floors and they spend the rest of the movie kind of wandering around um thinking how we you know how are we going to get out of this all together we might be here a long time before we find a way out a long time you see we're a good many miles beneath the surface Start making coconut cream pies, kind of Gilligan's Island style. As, as, and they're walk, as they're walking around this sort of Hollywood studio type underwater cave a few miles below, like, there's not a drop of water ev- anywhere. Everything's completely dry. There's no seepage. There's no nothing. They just kind of walk around uh, all dreamy eyed. And 20 minutes in the movie, there's nowhere to go for the plot. So they find this kind of Robinson Crusoe character who's been down there for ages, who's, who's got probably. <laughs> The worst fake beard in movie history, you know, and he's and, and the sort of the torn clothes and all that sort of stuff. Hello, are we glad to see you? What do you want here? Well, we don't want anything except to get out. We were underwater in a diving bell. The cable snapped, dropping us to the bottom. We left the bell and found our way in here. You see, we were attempting to break a depth record. I've been here fourteen years. 
14 years. But how did you get here? The same as you. And you haven't found a way out in all this time? There is no way. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> Uh, funnily enough, they do find a way out. The, the two women argue over which male likes them best. <laughs> uh, the guy who's been down there with the fake beard for 14 years, he, he sort of wants to kill all the others and take one of the women for his partner and stay down there forever. Um, and, and they jump in the diving bell and somehow get back to the surface. And like I said, not a drop of water seen in the whole movie anywhere. Great show on, on YouTube if you've got an hour and eight minutes to, you know... I've got to ask, though, where, where, does the, where does the petrified forest come in? I have no idea. <laughs> that was, I, I reckon that was I, to, to get people who were looking for yeah. the Humphrey Bogart movie and they'd, they'd come across this and think, oh, it must be the same film. No, it's just these sort of weird kind of caves with a perfectly flat, polished, smooth floor that they've just sort of erected in half a day in some studio. And these, these, these four people and plus the Robinson Crusoe guy just walk around sort of going oh yeah okay and they stop and they deliver their scene like it's a, a stage play kind of thing they face the cameras and talk absolutely absolutely but that's what they were doing in 1957 they were churning out one every one a week and sticking them on drive-ins or something but, um, great stuff so and you've got more of that to come next time you're in about I a hope month's so. time I hope so well we want more of that Jeff oh, look, yeah. I, I take a bullet for you guys looking at this, <laughs> all this sort of rubbish up every week I do have better things to do Brian <laughs> I, I have a life. Well, we're glad you're spending so much of it with us. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Beach. Thank you. Thank you, Nerida. She's been uh, amazing panelling for us today. Thank you, Kent. He's taken loads of calls. And uh, just repeating those, oh, and of course to our, uh, our other guests, uh, Helen Gibson from the Sandringham Foreshore Association and Professor Tim Flannery, and of course to Captain Windshift as well. Those details, if you uh, joined us uh, in the last sort of 10 minutes or so for the event next week, this is down at uh, the Beaumaris Bay Fossil Site of International Significance at Ricketts Point Beaumaris Life Saving Club uh, next Sunday, 22nd of February from 12 till 3. On next week's program, Terry Allen, our brand new dive reporter, is coming in and she's going to be talking about diving in the bay. We're also going to be speaking with Jules Barr-Thompson, who's going to be paddling from Newcastle to Bondi to raise money for Surfrider Foundation and motor neurone disease uh, research. And Dr Surf's going to be in talking about board shaping as well. Stay tuned for Radiotherapy. They're going to take you through till 11 o'clock and then the Einsteiners will take over. But in the meantime, have a wonderful Sunday. Get out there, enjoy the heat while we've still got some. We'll catch you next week. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.